The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the 7th chapter and the 18th verse. The 18th verse in the 7th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. He that speaketh of himself, or better, from himself, seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Here, as you see in this verse, our Lord continues the series of things that he is saying to these Jews, these Jewish authorities, the teachers and leaders of the people with whom he met in the temple at Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me remind you again of the exact setting. Let me start reading at verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now then, there is our context and setting. Our Lord is dealing with the unbelief of these Jewish authorities. There he was in the temple, and he had been teaching them, and we have considered his teaching. He was showing them the truth about himself. He was showing how he was the fulfillment of God's promises under the old dispensation in the types and the shadows, even in this Feast of Tabernacles. He had been showing unto them, in other words, the way of salvation. But alas, they didn't believe in him. They rejected him and his teaching with scorn and with derision. Though, in a sense, he had been saying things to them such as we've just been singing in our hymn, where we have been reminded of the blessings of the gospel, where we have been reminded of the things that become true of a man who, believe, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepts his teaching. Though they had been presented with all this, they dismissed it, and they dismissed him. They said, how hath this fellow letter? having never learned. And then, you remember, our Lord began to address them. He knew their hearts. He could see exactly what was passing in their minds. He saw the reasons for their rejection of him. And he begins to point them out to them one by one. Now, we've considered the first which he made, the first point he made, which was this. He said, the mistake you make is to think that this is purely a question of intellect. This is a question of man's understanding, you think. This is a question of a man arriving at a knowledge of the truth. 
And you're quite wrong. It isn't then. It's revelation. My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. He points that out to them. And then he went on to point out to them the thing we were considering together last Sunday evening. Something which they had failed to realize, as so many failed to realize still. That this whole question of believing the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching is essentially a moral question. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. He said, that's the trouble with you. You don't really desire to know and to do the will of God. So you're wrong there again. It's essentially a moral question. The desire to live the holy life and to know God. Our Lord says that if a man genuinely wants to please God and to carry out his dictates to be holy, he'll very soon come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give the reasons why that is inevitably the case. But here now tonight he goes a step further. Indeed, he comes to what is in many ways the ultimate matter. The ultimate reason why anyone does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe his teaching, he says, is this. It is purely a question of pride. Self-glorification. That is the ultimate obstacle. That is the final difficulty. Unbelief is in the last analysis, says our Lord here, purely a question of pride. Now, you notice that the way, the way in which our Lord puts it enables him at one and the same time to do two things. In other words, he has a double object in what he says. The first object and the direct object is to state the truth concerning himself and his teaching. He's anxious to do that. They have dismissed him as this fellow. They say he's voicing his own opinions. They say he's setting himself up. He's a conceited fellow, presumptuous in setting himself up as a teacher. He wants to answer that. So he makes a positive, direct statement with regard to himself and his teaching. But he has a second object and an indirect one. And that is to show them their position in contrast or by contrast with his. Now it is very important that we should work out this statement along both those lines. Surely there's no difficulty about the second. It's here implicit in the statement itself. And if anybody is still in any doubt about it, well, you've just got to go on reading. He begins to apply it and says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? That's it. He's making a direct attack upon them. He is revealing to them their self-glorification. So that is implicit in this 18th verse. The positive truth about himself, the implied truth by contrast concerning them, in order that he may make his case concerning unbelief complete and final. Now, what our Lord here says about them, in other words, is something that he says in so many other places about these same Jews. 
These were the Pharisees and scribes. These were the doctors of the law. These were the same people to whom he addressed the words that we've already read from the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 23, where at the end of his ministry, he looked into their faces and told them the simple, blunt, exact truth about themselves and about their future destiny as men who rejected him and who refused his teaching. Well, now then, here we are, face to face with what I venture to call the ultimate cause of unbelief. Shall we remember as we proceed to consider it that he says that the final fate of an unbeliever is the damnation of hell? Very well. This is not a theoretical discussion. I'm not engaged this evening in a philosophical investigation. I'm not taking up the subject of unbelief because it's interesting to make a psychological analysis of it. God knows that's not my purpose. My dear friend, your eternal destiny and mine depends upon whether we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. And my only motive for analyzing the causes of unbelief is that our Lord did it himself. He did it in love. He wanted these people to see the enormity of their rejection of him. They're dismissing him as this fellow. How can this fellow teach, never having learned? Very well then, let us listen in that way. Now, it seems to me that I can put this whole matter to you in the form of three propositions. Here is the first. There are only two teachings confronting mankind this evening. There are only two ultimate views concerning life. The first, of course, is that which comes from God. He that speaketh from himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, and who therefore gave him the message and the teaching to give, he is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Very well, on the one hand, confronting every individual in the world tonight, there is this message which we have in the Bible, the truth of God, the revelation of God, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, that's one teaching. And I say there is only one other possibility. What is that? Well, he puts it like this. If any man, he says, he that speaketh from himself, of himself. And he means this, of course. That every teaching, apart from his teaching and the teaching of the Bible, is nothing but a human teaching. It's men speaking from themselves. Giving expression to their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own imaginations giving to mankind the result of their meditations concerning life. Now, this is a very important point, obviously. He says there's no other category. I am either speaking from myself or I am speaking from God and thereby glorifying him. 
Are we perfectly clear about this, I wonder, that we are all of us faced with these two and on, these two only possibilities this evening? We either submit to this revelation from God, which we've got in this book, or else we are pinning our faith and basing our life and the practice of life entirely upon uh, some human teaching, some uh, human theory, some human speculation, some human supposition, some human imagination. Human ideas. Our Lord's emphasizing that it is one or the other. I wonder whether we all realize that. You say, oh, I don't believe that gospel because what I think is this and what I... And so and so, he doesn't believe that. He's not a Christian. He says it's this and that. Now, I'm simply making one point this evening. Before we say anything at all about the respective merits of the two teachings, are you perfectly clear about this? That if you don't accept this teaching, well then, you've nothing to base your position upon but human opinion. Human authority, human sanction. I don't care how high your views are, how exalted your ideals. I don't care how good your morals may be. If they are not derived from this, they have no authority whatsoever. But the thoughts, the suppositions, the theories of men. And nothing beyond that at all. A man standing like this and addressing any congregation of people is either speaking from himself, he says, well, now then, I've thought about these things and I've lived in this world myself and these are the conclusions to which I have come. He's speaking from himself. He either says that or he says, well, now, I'm not here to give my own opinions. I am simply here to expound the teaching of this book. I am here to repeat the teaching and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. Let me make it quite plain, therefore, that I'm not standing here and asking anybody to believe what I'm saying simply because I'm saying it. I'm not asking anybody to believe simply because I happen to believe it. I am here to say that this is the word of God. This is the statement of the Son of God. And to remind you that you're either submitting to this or else you are prepared to base your life, your view of death, your whole gamble on eternity upon your own ideas and opinions or that of other men and women like yourself. You either speak from yourself or else you listen to the word of God. That's the first point our Lord makes, but let me hurry on. Having laid down that fundamental proposition, he now makes this positive claim for himself and for his teaching. He says that he seeks the glory of God and that alone. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Here then stands this teacher, this carpenter from Nazareth, in the presence of the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law in the very temple of God in Jerusalem. 
And this is what he says. He says, I stand before you as one who seeks God's glory and that alone. He says, I am true. There is no unrighteousness in me. That's his claim. That is what he's saying positively and directly about himself. Now, surely, this is a statement which is so staggering and so unique that we must look at it and ponder it. Here is one who stands and without any hesitation says, I am not seeking my own glory in any sense or in any respect. My one concern is the glory of God. I say it is staggering. It is unique. He made it. That's his statement. The question is, is it true? Well, let's look at him. Let's look at him. This is either the most monstrous lie that has ever been uttered, or else it is the simple truth. This is, I say, the most gross exaggeration, the most abominable lie. Or else, we are confronted by the only person this world has ever seen who ever dared to make such a claim. Well, I say, this is a matter of life and death. Is this the Son of God or isn't it? If it is the Son of God, we'd better listen to him. He's unique. He's quite apart. There's never been anybody like him. Well, let's look at it. Let's run through the Gospels and we'll see whether his claim is substantiated or not. What do we find? Well, consider for a moment his behavior. And what you find in his behavior? Does it substantiate his claim? The most obvious thing about his behavior is this. He was never ostentatious. Never. There is one thing that nobody could ever charge him with, and that was that he was ostentatious. That he made a show of himself or advertised himself. You find indeed the exact opposite. Have you read the accounts of how he avoided crowds? Far from arranging that they might be present, he avoided them. When he saw a crowd coming, he'd go away, he'd go to another city. He moved elsewhere. How often do we read of him that he tried to hide himself? Do you remember the case of the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter? The Syrophoenician woman came to, he tried to hide himself, but we are told he could not be hid. She found him out, and she came, and she bothered him and pestered him. Don't you hear him turning to his disciples one day and saying, Come, he says, let us go to a desert place and rest a while. Those are his characteristic actions. Or watch him as he decides because of the crowd that gathers. He crosses the sea, the lake, to go to the other side, to get away from the people. But they followed him in little ships. He was always trying to get away, as it were. No ostentation. He quotes the words of the prophet about himself, that he shall not cry aloud. The smoking flax, he will not quench the bruised reed. He will not break, he will not cry aloud. Have you noticed how when he's worked a miracle, he tells people so often not to say a word to anybody about it, but simply go quietly and show themselves to the priest? 
Do you remember on her one occasion, and that was immediately after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? The people were so moved and astonished that they gathered together and decided that they'd take him by force up to Jerusalem and make him a king. They said it's monstrous that he should be here wasting his time amongst poor, common, ordinary people. He must be taken up to Jerusalem. They came and tried to take him by force to make him a king. He get kept away from them and he went up into a mountain himself alone. No ostentation. He never sought his own glory. Indeed, I needn't take you any further than this very chapter. Do you remember the beginning of the chapter? There was the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. And his brethren were amazed at him that he didn't go up immediately. They said to him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. What are you staying here in Galilee for, they said. Go up to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the world. They say, you're ridiculous. He wasn't making a display of himself, you see. Well, this seems to indicate that his claim is substantiated, isn't it? His practice supports it. He never sought that unhealthy, selfish, proud publicity. He seemed to evade it and avoid it. He seemed to dislike it. He was concerned about truth and about principle. And then uh, how is he described? Well, he is described as the meek and lowly Jesus. He was so humble in appearance that publicans and sinners drew nigh unto him. The common people heard him gladly. He wasn't like their own teachers who kept the people at a distance and who arrogated great powers. No, no, they felt they could approach him. Men possessed with devils drew near unto him. He attracted the poor, the maimed, the blind, the little children, meek and lowly. And then take his specific teaching, and you will find the same thing. We've already seen here that he has said to these people, my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. A man who seeks his own glory doesn't say that, does he? He rather wants to give the impression he, with his great brain, has made this discovery. Here is one who says, my teaching isn't mine, but his that sent me. He kept on saying that. He kept on repeating it. Not only that, in his teaching, he is constantly urging these people to give glory unto God. He says the same about his works. He says, the works that I do, I do not of myself, but the Father that sent me, he doeth the works. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. My Father and I are one all along. He is giving the glory to God for his words and for his works. And everywhere in his teaching is concerned to give glory to God. Why did he speak the parable of the prodigal son? Well, that he might teach them about God and give glory to God's love and mercy and compassion. Everywhere his great teaching is about God, the Father and all that he does and all that he is proposing to do. The whole time he is giving glory to God. And have you ever seen a life 
which has so clearly displayed the element of obedience unto God. How utterly he submitted himself to God. Do you remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's the supreme example of it. There he is praying and this is what he says. Father, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. And at once he adds this, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. Here is utter absolute submission to the will of the Father. He knew what was coming, the Father had revealed it to him. He knew that he was to be taken and to be crucified. He knew he was going to die of a broken heart. He knew that he was to be made a sin offering. He knew he was to experience the wrath of God upon sin in himself and in his own body. He knew the cup. It was there and he knew what was in it. But he submits utterly and absolutely if it be possible, let this cup pass by, but nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. And so he goes, helplessly as a lamb to the slaughter, submitting to all the indignities and all the shame and the ignominy and the agony of the cross and the cruel death. Why is he doing it? There's only one answer. He is doing it for the glory of God. He is doing it. He is submitting to it. That all the glorious character of God might be displayed to mankind. The justice, the righteousness, the holiness of God. Behold them on Calvary. There against sin. He's submitting that that may be known. The law of God and the justice and the righteousness. It's there. but also the love that is so great that he does that even to his only begotten beloved son that men and women might be rescued and might be redeemed. He came, I say, and he utterly submitted to the death of the cross. Why? Well, that God's name might be glorified. That the character of God in all its glorious fullness might be displayed to the people. His claim is that he has not come into the world to seek his own glory. But the glory of him that has sent him. And there he is, I say. Look at him. Look at him in life, behavior, demeanor. Teaching, actions, in the garden, on the cross. It is always the same, the glory of God. Surely his claim is substantiated. And then you see he deduces this from it. That because he is entirely and only concerned about the glory of God, that his teaching is true, he puts it like this. He says, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. And it follows, doesn't it, of necessity in this way. If he is only concerned about the glory of God, well then he is not concerned to say anything or to teach anything except that which is given him by the only true and living God. 
He's got no motive for doing anything else. And he says, that's my position. I'm not concerned about my own glory, but about God's glory. Therefore, I only say what he's given me to say. My only desire is that he be glorified. I have no reason for being a liar. I have no reason for saying that which isn't true. And he says it's exactly the same with regard to his life. A man whose one object and desire is to glorify God cannot sin. Because if his only desire is to live to the glory of God, he knows the only way to do that is to keep God's commandments, to do that which is well-pleasing in his sight. He says, that is my position. I have not come to seek mine own glory, and for that reason what I'm saying is true, and my life is true. You can't point to sin in me. I am righteous. I am truthful. I am honest. I stand before you as one who has only a concern for the glory of God. That is his claim. Very well, now then, let's look at the other side. That is what he says about himself. What does he say about him, about them? This is what he says. He gives here the reason why men reject such teaching. Why were these Jews rejecting him? Why were they dismissing him as this fellow, this upstart? And here is his answer. He says it's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of knowledge. It is ultimately a matter of pride. It is that you're glorying in yourselves instead of glorying in God. Now this, my dear friends, is the profoundest teaching in the Bible. Did you know this? The cause, the ultimate and the real cause of all sin, I say deliberately, all sin, is pride, is selfishness, and self-centeredness. That is our Lord's contention. I want to establish this. The ultimate cause of all sin, the sin of unbelief included, is selfishness, self-centeredness, and arrogant pride, seeking our own glory rather than the glory of God. Now then, let me establish this proposition. Our Lord asserts the fact of man's pride and his consequent rejection of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that is taught everywhere in the Bible. Let me show it to you. According to the teaching of the Bible, the troubles of this world are due to a terrible power which is called the devil or Satan. What is the devil? What is Satan? What is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience? Who is the God of this world? Well, the Bible gives the answer. He is a bright and a mighty angelic being created by God. But here he is working against God, trying to ruin God's universe, getting men and women into captivity to himself. Why has he ever done so? And the answer is given... It was entirely due to his pride. He objected to having to bow the knee to God. He disliked being a created being. He said, who is God, that he should be above me? He wanted to set himself up as a rival to God. Pride, 
led to the fall of Satan. That's the ultimate cause of evil. But according to the Bible, it's not only the cause of the fall of Satan, it is equally the cause of the fall of men. Why did men ever sin? Why did men fall? I go on repeating this question. Why is the world as it is this evening? Why aren't we enjoying the blessings of God? Why aren't we all in a state of paradise? Why is the world divided up and all the jealousy and the envy and the rivalry and the hatred and the wars and the threats of wars? What's the matter? What's the cause of it? Where's it come from? Did it start like this? Of course it didn't. It started as paradise, perfection. What's gone wrong? What went wrong? The teaching of the Bible is this. All the trouble is due to man's pride. The serpent, the devil, came into the universe. And he approached the woman and he said, Hath God said, has God said that you shouldn't eat of that particular fruit? Why should you be kept down? It's not fair to you. You're not having your rights. You're being tre treated as created beings. You're bigger than that. God's keeping you down. He's keeping things from you. Are you going to submit to that? Are you going to put up? That was the appeal. That's the way he appealed to their pride, to their self-conceit. Are you going on, hath God said? What right has God to say? Are you going on to continue like that and submit to it? Pride. And the woman listened and the man listened. And it was pride that led to the fall. Pride has produced the chaos that we are so familiar with. Indeed, it's the teaching of the Old Testament everywhere. Read it for yourselves. You'll find kings greatly blessed by God. Their kingdom in a state of prosperity. Everything going well. Then you'll suddenly read a word like this. Then so-and-so lifted up his heart against God. And you soon find him falling. Have you ever read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? He was a very great man. A mighty potentate, a great dictator. He'd conquered most of the then known world. And after a while he began to lift up his heart against God, the God who blessed him. Made them build an image. He was God. He went mad with his self-conceit, his pride, glorying in himself. And God smote him. Struck him down. He became like an ox in the field. His nails grew into talons and he was eating grass. God humbled him. Why? His pride. He lifted up his heart against God. That is the charge, you remember, that Daniel brought against King Belshazzar. He said, Thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast lifted up thy heart against God, though thou knewest all this about your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Lifted up his heart. That's the cause of all sin. Self-glorification, pride in self. It's the teaching of the whole of the Old Testament, but you get it equally in the New Testament. Did you notice what was said about those Pharisees in Matthew 23? It's our Lord saying it, not me. He says, you stand at the street corners. You take up prominent positions in the marketplaces. Why? To be seen of men. You make broad your phylacteries and extend the border of your gowns that men may look at you. And you want to be called rabbi. You're always looking for praise. That's his charge against them. To be seen of men. To draw attention to self. 
in any shape or form. It doesn't matter how. You remember his parable about the Pharisee and the publican that went up into the temple to pray and this is what he says about the Pharisee. He walked right forward to the front and he stood boldly. Of course, pride calling attention to himself, self-glorification. And wasn't that the trouble with Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul? Oh, how proud he was. How he gloried in his knowledge of the Lord, in his morality, in his religion, in his nationality, and in anything else he could find a glory in self-glorification. I! It's always the cause of the trouble. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians later in his life, he says, you see your calling, brethren? How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why not? He gives the answer. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the trouble. God, he says, has made the way of salvation what it is, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. But not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble believe this. Why? Because of their pride. They want to glory in themselves. And God says, no flesh shall glory in my presence. It's the teaching of the Bible everywhere. The cause of unbelief is pride, self-glorification. It's not intellect. It's not knowledge. It is this pride in the human heart. And as this is something that is taught everywhere in the New Testament, it is something that is still obvious and evident today. Look at these people who are not Christians. What are their characteristics? I'm not being unfair to them. But isn't it this? Pride of intellect. Pride of understanding how clever they are and how well they know it. Look at them. Look at your televisions. Just examine them. Look at them. Their confidence, their supreme confidence. How, what good terms they're on with themselves. Their great brains, their knowledge, their ability to bandy terms. How marvelous, how wonderful they are. Their capacity, their understanding, they would even understand God. And with their mincing words, they express their opinions about him. They'd encompass the whole earth, God included. Oh, the arrogance of such pride. Have you observed much humility about them? How often are they ready to say they don't know? Pride of intellect, pride of capacity. Pride of learning, pride of wisdom, pride of goodness, yes, pride of religion as the Pharisees had it. Proud of the good they do, they do it and they report it and they see it's known. Proud of their all, their achievements and all their actions. Self-sufficient. The modern Pharisee is your modern intellectual. He has no need of God. He's getting on so well without him. He has such understanding. He doesn't believe in God, of course not. He is no longer primitive. He doesn't need any help. He is self-sufficient. He knows all. He understands all. He's able to do all. He needs nothing further. Self-contained, autonomous man. That's the modern Pharisee. The essence of the Pharisee is that he sees no need of God. And he sees that there is no need of his being helped in any respect. He is entirely self-centered and self-satisfied. He is glorying in himself 
and he does not glorify God. Now then, there are the facts. Well, what our Lord says is this, that such an attitude and such a mentality makes it impossible for people to believe in him. He says a man who so seeks his own glory does not believe in God and he does not believe in me. And he's no longer true and he's no longer righteous. This follows, I think, of necessity. I think I can prove it to you. Why does this self-glorification make a man reject Christ? It works like this. To start with, it makes him dishonest even in his thinking. He's not true. He's dishonest. But how do you prove that, says someone? I prove it like this to you. If a man is self-centered and concerned about his self-glorification, he will of necessity be much more concerned about his own reputation than he is about the truth. That's right, isn't it? If the biggest thing in your life is yourself and your self-glorification, I say that when you're facing truth, you're really more concerned about yourself than you are about the truth. It works out like this, doesn't it? He's always defending himself and his position instead of allowing the truth to search him. Now, I'm talking about every one of us. God knows I've been as guilty of this as any person in this building at this moment. I've been in arguments. Yes, what I've been really doing is defending myself. I haven't been interested in truth. I've got a point of view, and I'll fight it to the last ditch. I'm interested in myself rather than in the truth. How anxious we all are to prove our consistency. Is there anything more difficult to the natural man than to admit that he's wrong? Or that he was mistaken? That he must change his opinion? There is nothing I say that we hate more than that. And we enter into our arguments. We say, I'm a seeker and a searcher after truth. I've got an open mind. I've got no prejudices at all. I am a free thinker. Free thinker. You argue with him and you'll see him defending his positions. And then he'll jump. He'll, he'll, he'll say something that isn't distinct, distinctly honest. He'll raise a red herring. He'll do anything to evade that truth. He'll anything to defend his position. Why? Well, he's fighting for himself and his pride. He's not interested in truth. He's interested in himself as a free thinker. And he can't be wrong. He can't admit that. Why? That's to admit the whole case of the other side. So the moment a man, you see, is concerned about his own glory, he no longer can think straightly. He is prejudiced. He arrives at his conclusions without listening to the evidence. He comes to the end before he started. And isn't that the trouble? My dear friend, I ask you in the name of God to be honest. Are you really seeking the truth? Ah, uh, do you really want to know Christ? Do you really want to experience salvation? Well, then I ask you, when you're listening to it, are you really giving it an opportunity? Or are you deliberately shuffling it off? Are you looking round the congregation? Are you trying to giggle or smile or laugh or try and push it away somehow? Now, I say, if you're doing that, you're not true. You're dishonest. You're simply concerned about yourself. And that is the truth about the unbeliever. It isn't intellect. It's this prejudice. It's this defending myself. And when the truth comes to me and condemns me, I rationalize my sins. I manipulate my own conscience. To use the words of the late Lord Belfer, I turn my conscience into my accomplice and not my guide. 
And we're all guilty of this. Why? Well, because of self, defending self at all costs. We are not open to the truth. These Jews were not. You're not true, says Christ. You're so concerned about your own reputations that you're dishonest. They wouldn't allow the truth to penetrate, though they marveled at his teaching. That's how it works. But that isn't the only thing that happens. When a man is living for himself and his own self-glorification, I say he can't think honestly, but there's another factor, it is this. To be in that state makes the teaching of Christ utterly hateful to us because it is so true. Why did these Pharisees hate him? They had to admit he was marvelous. They couldn't understand his teaching. And yet they hated him and dismissed him and spoke with sarcasm about him. Why did they do it? I'll tell you why. Because he was so different from them. His very personality shamed them and condemned them. The innocence, the purity, the meekness, the lowliness. And they hated him for it. Without saying a word, he shamed them. He was so different from them. But he didn't stop at that. He read them as an open book and they knew that they were being read. He exposed the dishonesty, the hypocrisy that was in their hearts and in their minds. He brought to the surface everything that I've just been working out with you in terms of argument. And they knew it, and they hated it. He knew them, he read them. Everything was open to him. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And they hated this. They wanted to be on good terms with themselves. And he made them feel they were cads and sinners. But then there was always the final insult. And this is the reason why men reject Christ and his salvation. The final insult is this. He says that we are lost. The Son of Men, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. We are lost with all our philosophy and our learning and all our science and knowledge. He says we are lost. This is an insult. He says we've got to become as little children. Monstrous. Little children. We with our brains and our advances. Except you be converted and become as little children. Listen, he says, as children. We say this is impossible. It's insulting. Our pride is hurt. He says that he has come from heaven into this world to save us. He says that we are so hopeless that he alone can save us. That we can't save ourselves, that no man can save us, no teaching can save us. He and he alone can save us, he says, and it hurts us, our pride is wounded. He says that we are so hopeless, that even he cannot save us without dying for us. He's got to go to that cross, to that gibbet. He's got to shed his blood and his body must be broken before we can be saved. We are as vile as that. He ends by adding the last insult. You must be born again. You are so hopeless, he says, that you can't be improved. You need a new nature. A new heart. 
a new beginning. You must be born again and become a babe and start from the very beginning. Ah, says the modern man, this is intolerable. This insult. A man who glories in himself, he cannot believe the gospel, for it knocks him down at every point, and he hates it. You see, it's not a matter of intellect, it's purely a question of pride, of self-glorification. That is why men reject the gospel. Shall I end on this third note? The tragic folly of men in this pride and self-glorification. What a fool is man in sin. Here he is rejecting the Son of God because of his pride in himself. What a tragic folly, I say. Why? Well, because man has nothing to be proud of. What does he know? What does man really know? Oh, you say he knows about the atom. I know. But you know, that's a very small bit of knowledge as compared with this. What do you know about yourself? What do you know about life? What do you know about God? What do you know about death? What do you know about what happens after death? Tell me what you know. Man, proud, arrogant, glorying in himself. What does he know? No, no. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. All the ignorance of men about the things that really matter. And not only that, look at men like this. Not only is he ignorant, what is he to boast about as regards his achievement? Look at the world and what he's made of it. Is that something to be proud of? Are you proud of this modern world? Are you proud of the present international situation? That's man, modern man in all his glory, superior to all the preceding generations. Look at him. Look at his world. Is that something to be proud of, I ask you? Oh, the tragic folly of this pride. But let me be personal. Are you proud of yourself, really? Are you honest? Are you pure? Are you clean? Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you really proud of yourself? Oh, man, how canst thou be so mad as to take pride in self in man and nothing to show for it? It's tragic folly. But there is another element to this tragic folly, and it's this. That man, in rejecting the teaching of Christ, is rejecting a teaching which, as he says, is true. It's true. It's God's own teaching. It is teaching about God in his greatness as the judge of all the earth. God in his righteousness and holiness and majesty and everlasting glory. That's what he says. It's true. He says his teaching is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. His teaching is one which tells us this. 
that God is not only almighty, but he knows everything. God judges not by the outward appearance. God knows what is in the heart of men. As our Lord said to these Pharisees on another occasion, he said, you are they that justify yourselves before men, but God seeth the heart, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. My dear friend, God knows your heart and mine. We can put up a pretty good appearance for others. We can say we are as good as they are. But they don't know the truth about us, do they? They don't know about the thoughts, the imaginations, the desires, the evil, foul things. God knows them all. He reads you as an open book. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Christ thought furthermore that God hates sin and evil, that he is determined to punish it, and he will punish it eternally without end. That is his teaching, and it is true. Isn't it madness to refuse and to reject such teaching? But it doesn't stop even there. That's his teaching about God, but listen to his teaching about himself and about the way of salvation. He says, yes, that is God, but God is also love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If he had merely preached about God in his righteousness and justice and wrath, And holiness, I could understand people in a sense rejecting him, though even then they'd be fools. But he didn't stop at that. He said, look here, though God is like that, so great is his love, his mercy and his compassion that he has sent me, his only son, into the world. What for? To bear your sins and their guilt and their punishment in my own body, that you may be freely forgiven that your sins may be blotted out, that God may give you a new nature and a new heart and a new start and a new beginning and at the end receive you unto himself in glory. That's the teaching and it's true. Is there any greater madness or tragic folly than that men because of their foolish pride and self-glorification should reject such a person, should reject such a teaching, should refuse such a wonderful salvation, should jeopardize their whole eternal future and risk the possibility of everlasting torment in hell. That's the cause of unbelief. Let me use a strong term. Stinking pride. Idiotic pride. With nothing to be proud of. Men in their pride reject him and God and this glorious salvation. My dear friend, can you go on doing it? I can't believe it. Realize what you're doing. And then listen to this. Listen to the words of Horatius Bonar. He saw the whole thing. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, 
I freely give the living water. Thirsty one, stoop down, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived. And now I live in him. Ah, but you see the condition. You can't drink of a well while you're standing erect in your pride and in your self-glory. There's the water. There it is. Everything you need will quench your thirst, will give you life and vigor and power. Everything you need and infinitely more. It's there. Thousands have taken of it. But you can't take of it without stooping down. Stoop down. Get on the floor, lie on the ground, stoop down and drink and live. The alternative is to go on standing on your feet in your foolish arrogance and pride and self-glorification until one day you'll drop dead and go to what our Lord himself described as the damnation of hell. Thirsty one, stoop down, stoop down, become a fool that you may be made wise, stoop down and drink, and the moment you do so, you'll begin to live, life from God will come into you, and you'll begin to enjoy in anticipation the glorious of eternity. Stoop down. Become as a little child and drink and live.